At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I gotta say it, Danny. I think that, at least as of right now, the quality of play in bubble basketball is better than you could expect. I don't know if it's the neutral court. I don't know if it's not traveling. And when I say better than you can expect, I mean even better than what we normally get in playoffs. I don't know if it's because there's more room on the court, which is something we could talk about. Um, I'm not really sure what it is. Maybe it's fewer injuries, guys being fresher. Could just be random chance, obviously, too. But, I mean, this is just another amazing game Uh, before we talk about that though i want to just remind you quickly that you've got four days left now until the calendar turns over in the wee hours to september 8th to sign up for the special pre-sale pricing for dunked on prime that will give you not only the podcasts but everything else uh, that we are offering we're setting up a discord for people we're going to try at least to do some sort of a video happy hour for members we're going to do some written chats on occasion and of course you get the very same salary sheets that danny and i use uh, to do all of our off-season stuff you'll get daily dunks which is uh, our links that we send out every day to help you keep up with things Uh, they'll be available either by email or on the site that will be live by september 8th and with that special pre-sale pricing once we actually go live on september 8th we're never going to offer that again but if you sign up now before september 8th you can get locked in for that price in perpetuity so highly recommend if you think you might sign up to try and do that because we're actually offering the year membership for dunked on total access which is what we're calling all of that stuff the podcast four days a week subscription plus all of those other goodies that i mentioned we're offering that at a less expensive price than we're offering just the podcast membership once we actually go live for a yearly price and then also if you're in a position where you're facing some difficult financial circumstances you can email us at dunkedonprime at gmail.com just a couple lines about what your situation is and we will get back to you as of september 8th and green light you for uh special pricing that we have because we don't don't want people who are in tough financial circumstances to miss out on the show so just wanted to remind you of all that and make sure that if you really like the show you can take advantage of uh, the best possible pricing that we're offering people as a token of our appreciation for supporting us in launching this before it even goes live all right let's talk about the end of the game here i mean that's that's where we have to start right uh do you want to just should we just go through those last three ridiculous possessions yeah we we might as well do that uh so are you counting it with the offensive rebound with toronto or were yeah yeah i think so that last 
uh, attempt by Toronto, I mean, which actually technically started with Cal Lowry getting stopped by Kemba Walker as he was trying to go for the two for one at going out of bounds. Uh, and then, which I was surprised actually didn't get reviewed because everything gets reviewed at the end. It looked like uh, the right call though to me. Yeah, probably. But uh, so then, yeah, going... Uh, they call a timeout to try to get the two for one with 35 seconds left. They get Van Vliet for a three coming off a handoff from Gasol. Pretty tough look. Tice challenges him, misses, but Ananobi with his first absolutely enormous play in the last 30 seconds grabs the rebound gets it back to Van Vliet who hits on an incredibly tough drive around Tice who is still matched up with him because Tice had been the one to challenge his initial jump shot. And because of that, he wasn't underneath to help get the rebound. And Van Vliet hit an incredible layup, uh, finishing usually not his strong suit, but he, he did it there. Boston elected not to help. They were up two. And uh, the Van Gundy thought maybe it should have been an and one. I so, didn't think so. I, th- I thought there, were, there was contact, but it was insufficient to call. Yeah, I, I thought it was legal contact. He had his arms straight up, and it's pretty difficult to, to call a foul in that situation. So then, no timeout for Brad Stevens after well, that. And, and, and that surprised yeah. me for two reasons. One, I want to spend some real time, because I rewatched the last five minutes, and Boston's first shot offense, their overall process, was terrible throughout the final five minutes of this game. And so I thought, hey, Brad Stevens, also very well-respected ATO coach, maybe they'll go to something here and also Toronto's closing five is so damn good defensively you don't run into the consequence of oh crap like we're gonna call a timeout and they're gonna get all these better players on the floor like that's it's not a circumstance where that's really gonna happen uh so I was a little bit surprised but then it ended up producing you know it ended up producing an absolutely insane would have been one of the like is still one of the most memorable plays of the entire postseason um from from Kemba and what I thought was really interesting was so to me, there were kind of two through lines of this uh, of the crunch time of this game. One was Boston's overall process in, in late game offense. Then the other one was the bigs in these games just getting beat by guards who are faster than them. Like Marcus Ole got beaten numerous times during this, and he didn't actually on the first part. Uh, so they run, they run the screen, get Kemba Walker, and instead the the Raptors do a, do a double, and Kemba just can't originally get to the corner. He's trying to get around Marcus Ole the way Jason Tatum did about a minute and a half before. Marcus Ole's there. So Kemba, I thought this was an amazing thing. He moves back and Marcus Ole just kind of leans the leans the other way. And then Kemba turns back, basically crosses his own crossover back, and then and then gets to his gets to his right hand, and then that's what forces Kyle Lowry to help. Yeah, it was really, I mean, Kemba, like just watching him on some of these plays, like how low he gets to the ground. And we've talked about him as a dribbler, the way he sets up screens where he might be the best in the NBA at that. But he's just such a technician off the dribble is the part you said. I thought I phoned it on something that happened even before that, which was, and this was a constant cat and mouse game down the end. You mentioned that the process for Boston was definitely slow getting into their offense. And because they were a little more station to station, that was allowing Toronto to do a lot of pre-switching. Yes. Although Boston did make a couple of plays at their expense uh, on the pre-switch. One, where Jalen Brown got a drive. He was the guy being guarded by Gasol for a second. He faked like he was going to go up and set the screen. And so they tried to switch someone onto him. And so they just threw Jalen Brown the ball right away on the wing before the the pre-switch could take place before Jalen Brown would go up and set the screen and then Jalen Brown was able to drive I can't remember what ended up happening oh that I think he missed the layup and then that was that great Tatum pass underneath to Tice off the missed layup but that but he initially got penetration off off of that that play so I thought that process was pretty decent and then on this play Boston just kind of had a couple of guys interchanging underneath 
to avoid the pre-switch i think it was it must have been brown who got someone pre-switched onto him and then he just sort of ran off to the side and then smart sprinted up to go set the screen and so gasol was like oh shit and he was a little bit late getting there he recovered initially as you mentioned and then kemba was able to get her on it yeah that's a great point i'm happy you brought that up and so then kemba drives and kyle lowry steps up and so then that left Pascal Siakam with the choice. Kemba Walker has the ball in his hands about the free throw line with 2.2 seconds left. And Siakam is between Daniel Tice and Jalen Brown. He ends up not really guarding either of them, but it was such a split second thing. And then Kemba Walker makes one of the most beautiful passes I've seen in a long time just pits it and it's not only about the deception of making sure that Tice got it but the accuracy and the timing was so important because Tice then dunks the ball with a half second left and remember with a dunk you don't have the same margin for error of oh as long as you get the shot up if the if the dunk is still in his hands when the zeros go on the clock the game the regulation is up yeah and also maybe if he shoots a layup it takes a little more time to go off the glass and the game is over or they or they have zero point three seconds left instead of 0.5 which would have sunk a bit sunk him anyway and you know I, I mean i guess this is an indication of why you always release it with zeros on the clock but i mean if you can get a wide open dunk to go up to you take it and you play defense like you're you're in a better position than than you are missing the shot and going into into overtime I and mean, so that was it was clearly the right decision to pass it and take it like you know instead of just running the clock down and i like that they at least ran a play instead of just doing the ISO, particularly because, you know, there isn't really with OG guarding Tatum, and I thought he did a pretty good job. There wasn't really that guy who has a great advantage in an isolation. Like they're doing much better uh, in pick and roll. And so uh, to go to that, they got a great look and they got a dunk and uh, out of the scramble. So that was a really great play, but Toronto then made an even better play to win the game. Well, it, it, I think there's a, a fun piece of symmetry with this game and the absolute classic ending that we talked about yesterday, which is that game featured two line defenders making a series of impressive plays including James Harden blocking Lou Dort's shot at the very end this one justifiably so Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown who have been two of the better young defenders in the league I don't know exactly what you could say caused the miscommunication but somebody was at fault there and so they had a there was a defensive lapse involving some of the best defensive players that opened up one of the most memorable moments of the postseason yeah it was tough though because they're in this 2-3 zone but with Taco Fall guarding the inbound, which was an inspired move, I thought, uh, to put him out there. But with him guarding the inbound, or maybe it's not an inspired move. I don't know. We'll, t- we'll talk about that, actually. Because we saw in the other game in, where they had a little more time, but having the guy guarding the inbounder take away some of the first looks really helped a, a lot. So maybe they shouldn't have had him on the inbounder. But nonetheless... Uh, and you could also argue as well that having someone on the inbounder is a lot less effective when Kyle Lowry can just back up five feet the way he did well, instead of I having like a things. crowd there. I want to say two things that I think are important here. One, yeah, the the, the bubble distance, as Kevin Pelton yeah. put it, that you can that players are now further they can be further off of the sideline. But then the second part of it is you don't have to worry about the inbounder taking the shot when it's a half a second left. So the you know that's one of the reasons sometimes you want somebody on the inbounder. It's not only about the passing angle; it's about the potential that yeah. they get the ball back. It is 
impossible for that to happen in that circumstance. Yeah, it's a great point. And so Boston, that that putting him putting somebody on there, they go into that kind of weird zone, and Tatum thinks that. And and to me, I, I mean, it's probably just the scheme thing. Tatum expected that when OG kind of crossed his path, that Jalen Brown was going to switch on to onto Ananobi. However, Jalen Brown is currently guarding Pascal Siakam standing underneath the basket, and it didn't seem like Tatum was coming over to catch him. Maybe they thought something. Yeah. Like I was sitting when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, they would Lowry if he had seen it, he would have just thrown a lob to Siakam, and they would the game would have gone to overtime. Right. Well, so so really, what it was is that Tice was the guy who should have backed up and taken yes. him because because what they did it was really an inspired play call because the problem with the zone is you're guarding a zone and so if you put more guys elsewhere on the floor you can overwhelm that zone like in football it's called like a flood concept right so like so you know they, they didn't necessarily go there but they had you know kind of three guys basically above the break on you know pretty close to the inbounder and Tatum he can't leave right he's guarding if you're in a like a two three concept like if someone goes down in the corner like hit the near side corner right next to the inbound like he's right. got to take that guy so he can't follow uh OG Ananobi as he goes from one side to the other it is Jalen Brown's responsibility but actually exactly as you said right he's got to take Siakam he's worried about the pass to him getting lobbed up and so that's why the play design was so perfect right to set that back screen by Siakam for OG to go all the way to the other side against the zone and I think you know Nick Nurse said that he got the play design from Hubie Brown there's a little confusion about you know whether that was the primary option like Cal Lowry said you know it was kind of improvised or something maybe it was just that he meant there was just another option on the play but because you know that Brad Stevens is going to go to that 2-3 at the end I I kind of you know against the dumb coaches i think that's fine because they're not going to know that brad stevens does that nick nurse knows that you're going to go to to that zone on the out of bounds and stan van gundy was all over it too he's like yeah this is what they're going to do they're going to be in the zone they always do this but particularly at that point with only 0.5 left where you know that if you get enough guys into a certain area they're not going to be able to cover all of them and you know if you screen a certain guy in a certain area you're going to be able to get open uh I've, I mean, I know they've had a lot of success with that down the end, and it does at least prevent you from, you know, someone getting fooled, and then you go back door and you give up a layup. Although worth noting, that would have only tied the game. Uh, but I would want to switch in that situation um, and just make sure that you're never in a situation where you don't have a defender close to whoever it is who's making the catch. And, well, and as and it turns, yeah, go ahead. And remember also, th- this is going back to my fixation with it only being a half a second left there are a lot of things that aren't as much on the table if you have a half second like a catch and turn and throw isn't really there it's it has to be such a quick motion so if you switch you it's not even like the whole thing of like oh just throw it to the big man and he can grab it and and do it like a post-up kind of thing it basically has to be a tip it and so i think they could have done that with siakam if he had been wide open but yeah I, i agree with you i think that especially in that limited of a circumstance and boston has plenty of guys that are switchable size like it's not like it's not like they have a personnel issue here which many other teams do that's full credit to Danny Ainge for having enough of those guys to make it potentially possible and so but with the other thing that I thought made this so fascinating was I thought my theory is that Lowry's passing angle 
actually made the shot more possible because it coming on a high arc allowed it to hit Ananobi in eventually kind of right within his shooting pocket and his shooting motion. And I know there were people who were complaining, oh, we didn't get off in 0.5 seconds. First of all, he got it off before the buzzer went off. And if you're expecting a timer to be perfect in those circumstances, then I, I don't know what to tell you. That's not the way this works. And I, I thought they did as good of a job exactly. as you could have expected uh, like, there. You know, you, you're not using it's not robots. You're not using it like that's yeah. there is there is an understood thing. And remember that like that's part of the beauty of the way that basketball does this is that well, and, and that's too why is why the rule is if you're under zero point four, you're you're not allowed to do a catch and shoot like that. There's actually a play. That, I think the play that created that rule was. Michael Jordan in the corner in a game against the Celtics in 1991 hit a ridiculous fadeaway with 0.3 left to tie or I can't remember whether it tied the game or gave the Bulls the lead in like double overtime or something I think the Celtics ended up winning that game but I think after that they went back and changed the rules like no like it's not physically possible we know that was 0.3 so now they had this rule that you have to have at least 0.4 sorry for that aside but I don't know if we ever talked about that no I I think it's good to do that and so and to me Ananobi got it off completely cleanly and he has a really he has a fast release full credit to Ananobi and he's made he's made some of those really late you know low 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 clocks at catch and shoots before and so I thought that it was it ended up working out beautifully for Toronto and I mean we don't know exactly what the the full consequences of this in relation to the series I mean Toronto is still in a tough situation you know it's but it is a it, the series is far from over which it would have been functionally if they had lost the game last thing on that i mean to for him to not do his full shooting motion as well to just do like the quick shot and then like short arm it intentionally which you'll see guys do at the end of the clock uh that was key for two reasons number one he probably doesn't get it off in time and it was so close regardless and then Jalen Brown made an incredible recovery I mean the athleticism on display for him to basically you know he's taking off from basically like his own like the side of the lane and jumping and he misses it by just a fingernail like if he follows through a little bit more maybe Jalen Brown gets a hand on that it was that was just that feat of athleticism to just see like Here's what an NBA player can do if he just jumps absolutely as high and as far as he can uh, with a running start. That was incredible. It was. Uh, and, and OG Ananobi, he's been maybe the perhaps best overall player in this series. Like his shooting, that was a big question coming into these playoffs. And I think he is definitely answering the, those questions uh, and, you know, looking like an exceedingly valuable player going forward. Uh, you know, we'll talk a lot more about his free agency in the summer of 2021 of course uh, at a later point but uh anything else on the end of the game you want to talk about not on the very end i'll get it i'll i'll, I'll go in my little tirade about boston's offense later <laughs> no well, i mean let's talk about it now we're still we're, we're here yeah uh, actually no we're not here we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll talk about it isn't it gonna be nice when we only have to do that once every week <laughs> yeah that's right you get uh all five episodes commercial free with uh dunked on prime dunked by the way uh link is in the show notes for those of you who don't remember web links very well when they're spoken to you and yeah we'll still have the one public podcast a week but we'll give that podcast ad free to subscribers of course as well yes man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 
2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And now Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easy to slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas i'm going to be freezing but the american giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside and things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us so you wanted to talk about the stagnant offense for boston towards the end right so i rewatched the last five minutes and it was something i noticed live i i might have tweeted about it i don't was that boston was with really unless they could get something in transition most of the time they weren't getting into what you could consider like a, a an attacking action like there was a lot of stuff going on off ball and i, I give stevens credit they were trying to get mismatches trying to take advantage of the priest which is as you talked about before but 
generally speaking, the Celtics were not actually starting something like attacking action with more than 10 seconds left on the on the shot clock. And there are a couple big problems there against the team of Toronto's caliber. And the biggest one is just that when you only really get one shot at beating a defender, you don't give, even though Toronto doesn't make that many mistakes, you don't give your team that many options. And I thought the, the most emblematic reflective play of this was one where, uh, so Tatum at 230, so the possession's about 230 left. They, Tatum gets into the action originally at eight seconds left. Now, it did get slowed down because he lost the ball when he was trying to attack Siakam, and he ends up just throwing up some crap from three. Like, it was a basically a no-hoper possession that Boston got into off of a missed three by Fred Van Vliet. So, I mean, it wasn't like it was, you know, they, Toronto was totally locked in and they were back or anything like that. And so, like, you do want to give Toronto credit. Like, this isn't just a, you know, there were, there were reasons why it was taking Boston a while to get into it. But it was like that on every single possession with one exception, and that was the one where they got um they got smart tice hit a nice kind of like a, a screen to to catch kyle lowry and then smart threw a really nice pass to kemba which actually that three would have functionally ended the game but he missed it but other than that it was these really slow and not particularly deliberate actions that were creating contested jump shots that they weren't making and if boston scores on even one more of those possessions then the game is the game is over probably and remember that they did score in the stretch but it was all these kind of opportunistic things you know like that beautiful jason tatum pass to Jalen Brown the one you talked about before to Tice and and then the Kemba play which was a he had two play. passes to Tice right he had the he had the the quick pass off the offensive rebound and then he also had that incredible left-handed wraparound off the pick and roll I think uh, one of well. those was the Tice and one was to Jalen Brown but yeah there were yeah he, okay. he, Tatum, Tatum oh yeah 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 it was to Jalen Brown you're right yeah sorry I, I got confused there. no worries about it and and, and so I think that you know, it just it just made life harder for them and Tatum incredible like getting his own shot he's gotten so much better at that and had some had some in this game but it's just I, I think that you're kind of in, in a way you're selling your guy short and Stevens yeah. well particularly against Ananobi yes. as well like he has not gotten good looks uh, against Ananobi yeah and so so to me the the kind of two through lines of, of the game so there was that Boston part and and there were times uh, I think Seth noted Seth partner noted this that that Stevens was exhorting his players to go faster and you can only do so much if you're the coach I and mean, we could yell at them in the timeout I guess but then the other one was the the big men being out on the floor and getting beaten by guards and you know I I thought that in particular Marcus Gasol wonderful team defender and I think you know he's generally speaking like there's this truism that the Raptors are way better defensively when he's on the floor he does even if it doesn't show up in terms of blocks and anything else he's around the rim he's making life harder but Boston isn't attacking in the same way and I thought there were a few plays particularly when Tatum Tatum beat Marcus Gasol twice once got that wraparound pass to tight to or beat Gasol twice once the wraparound pass to Tice and then once got the layup for himself and Gasol is a valuable screener like there there's there's utility that we saw that kind of throughout the fourth quarter but I think Nurse needs to can seriously consider going to Serge Ibaka because Gasol isn't he doesn't provide as much value in this specific series as he does normally yeah Gasol it's interesting Uh, Ibaka I actually thought though that Gasol has still been better than Ibaka because Ibaka is still getting worked by Kemba in some of this pick and roll stuff and yeah he's Ibaka is like technically faster but he still doesn't have the understanding of the angles and also I think Gasol has been really good protecting the rim particularly when Tatum is attached he had one foul towards the end of game two that was a a a killer foul but overall they did a much better job 
job on Tatum in this game. He was only five out of 18. And I thought Tatum is having major problems scoring on Gasol around the rim. And then I also think that because they're just struggling to score so much and they finally got going a little bit in in this game that Gasol does give them just a little more organization a little more passing than Ibaka who's kind of more of a play finisher oh oh, you Um, mean mean he gives you more passing than Serge Ibaka who had his own teammate in the face (laughs) granted it hit the rim but still (laughs) well passes aren't supposed to hit the rim or your teammate in the face (laughs) (laughs) and oh oh, I have to have to mention this because this was maybe my favorite moment of the game other than the other stuff was I so I, I referenced when that happened when Serge Ibaka threw past at the bottom of the rim and it hit OG in the face and hit, knocked, knocked him pretty hard that it reminded me of Gerald Henderson and what was really funny is Spencer Percy um, tweeted out a, a, a gif of, of a Gerald Henderson pass hitting a fan in the face however that was not the one I was referring to there was a different Gerald Henderson pass the one that I, I that he hit a person who was walking on the on the you know like be, between the, the floor seats and the other seats hit them in the head and knocked him over so I was like oh yeah that's right like the basketball is amazing it's called a gift. Fine. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, it's uh, that's one of those just like absolute nerd arguments that will never be solved uh, because some people are irrational and call it a gif. Um, so yeah, and that's it. I, I think you, I, I understand sticking with the uh, with Gasol there. Um, okay, so I don't, I'll, yeah. I'll move to something else then. I think that okay. while Toronto did really get get things moving here, I think that they're one of the real sticking points has been pull up what's pull up jumpers when the person hasn't really created any separation. Kyle Lowry, some of his worst shots were this way. He started the game really hot. He got ten points, I think, in the first five minutes. And yeah, all going to the rim, though. Exactly. All going to the rim. And then Pascal Siakam, four of six in the restricted area and two of nine outside of it. And when you think of the shot distribution, it wasn't, you know, these catch and shoot or anything in rhythm. It was forced shots. And Boston does a really good job of that, but especially the ones that are early clock. And there were some Siakam ones with like 14, 15 left on the clock. Boston hadn't even started their actions yet at that point. Um, You, you can have to kind of expect something better. And it reminded me of something that I think was Harrison Barnes. No, it was Clay Thompson said after Steve Kerr's first season and he talked about how they had to recalibrate their expectations of what was a good and a bad shot and I think there are a lot of times players you know get into this like both teams know how great the other ones are defensively and think well maybe we're not going to get something better but it needs to be like okay this isn't a good shot we need to if this is the best we can do then we might as well keep trying anyway and so there were a few by Siakam a few by Kyle Lowry in particular Van Vliet missed more open ones you know like he was 9 of 22 from the field 5 of 13 from 3 I, I think that the, that the Celtics actually dodged some bullets there but overall you know i think there were if, if toronto could cut out some of those you're not going to maybe do that much better but give yourself a more fighting chance yeah i thought that boston suffered from that a little bit too smart off the heels of those oh, five boy. threes in the fourth uh was a little less judicious in his shot selection uh, to start with um well, actually, I want yeah. you brought the, brought up this point on Twitter, but I, I want to. It, it's worth emphasizing on the podcast, even though it was a carryover from a previous game. A lot of the times, when a hot hand becomes cool, it's because they aren't taking the same shots that got them hot in the first place. And Marcus Smart, those were catch and shoot threes above the break off beautiful passes from Jason Tatum. Primarily, he did hit a couple that were different, and they weren't just terrible. You know, like dribbling twos where you're driving into like kind of kind of pulling up next to somebody. And when a player loses the thread of like what worked for them, I think that's what really creates problems. And and Smart, he 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 is inconsistent, and sometimes he hits tough shots. But you're not doing yourself any favors starting a game like that. No, I, I agree with you. Um, let's see what else we got here. Oh. Kemba Walker's game was unbelievable. Oh, man. Um, I mean, he was he has been to me. You know, I know he had a rough first quarter of the game too, but he's been the best player in this series, I would say overall. And 
you know obviously he he was the guy to finish it off at the end but defensively he continues to make a, a ton of plays he he had three steals in this one he made that play against Lowry in transition when they're up two to force him to take the ball out of bounds took another couple of charges as well he's even like coming over and making help rotations for like verticality at the rim at times even though it doesn't always work he's there and he still remains the guy to me that is you know causes the most scheme problems and you saw it with oh man Marcus Gasol I gotta get up 35 40 feet from the basket on the last possession of the game and double team this guy and he's still gonna dribble around me uh you know because and if they lay the big back then he's just gonna go walk into that three off the dribble he sets up the screen you can't get through the screen uh, on him and Tice like he's gonna get open there uh or he can get into the mid-range as well and then if you try try to get up even just a little bit but without trapping him like if you have him attacking the big let's say the big is like you know a couple of steps below the screen then walker gets going you can blow right by him for a layup and so now i will say that i think toronto's strategy overall in this game was a little bit better in their man-to-man because they they at least took away some of the open threes that boston was getting and you know that strategy obviously looks better when uh guys are missing threes as well in particular smart who is two of nine and four of 15 overall but they're playing the pick and roll two on two and i thought that the celtics in particular walker did a really good job of limiting that and, and walker had 29 points plus 11 in 39 minutes uh nine of 15 from the field and the last thing i'll think of is how much better off are the celtics with Kemba Walker instead of Kyrie Irving and Bontemps actually said it that you know Walker might have been better than Kyrie last year he's playing number one this year number two he actually like moves the ball and plays as part of a team system number three he actually executes the defensive system plays hard on that end he's in better condition than Kyrie he doesn't just break the system and decide that he wants to go guard Giannis Antetokounmpo for no reason uh just to prove how hard he's trying before he leaves in free agency and he's the polar opposite of Irving as a teammate and so think about how the rise of Jason Tatum this year would have been handled if Kyrie Irving was still there great point great point like Walker has had no problems deferring to Tatum and you know he's had a few issues with his knee but those appear to be in the past thankfully they they credit the medical staff for doing a great job of ramping him up when it really was concerning that he wasn't 100% early in the bubble like he clearly is ready to go he's playing at a great level right now it's really been awesome to watch I mean he's the guy he and Tatum were the guys who really broke uh Philly obviously in the first round as well so uh really just incredible performance from him um for Toronto Lowry 31 points after what had been a struggle in the first couple of games still was not hitting the three finished two out of eight hit some big ones in the second half eight assists 12 of 23 and his shot chart was just crazy and I noticed this in the OKC series where Chris Paul has been finishing at the rim a lot more or was finishing at the rim a lot more the series is over but Lowry is doing that too like he used to be I mean people forget you know early in his Toronto days a wonderful wonderful finisher just that those tough Philly finishes using his body and and I think because he's feeling good here and also Boston doesn't have incredible rim protectors uh, who are going to come over and help that much. And, uh, you know, they also, Boston is very concerned about taking away the three-point line and the scouting report was make Van Vliet and Lowry finish at the rim and Lowry 
came out i think after a couple of drives late in game one he's decided that he can get to the room and finish he had a huge shot in the last couple of minutes that way he started off incredibly well with five buckets in the paint in the first quarter and obviously still plays incredibly tough and oh by the way 46 minutes well in this no, let's, game. let's go beyond that 46 minutes and 29 seconds the most <laughs> a player has played in a regulation game this year to do that in a playoff game with this amount of intensity and you you brought up the, the big shots like he actually had two other than the OG Ananobi three, which Lowry assisted on, he scored their final two baskets. You know, like he scored yeah. the two before that. He had a, a, a one where uh, well, but Van Vliet had the layup. Oh yeah, but, that's right. So, yeah. so he had two two of the four. Um, yeah. So, but it was yeah, it was the ones that, that got them to ninety seven and then got them to ninety nine. So the one when they got to ninety seven, that was Marcus Smart straight off Lowry a little too far, closed to his right hand, and so that gave Lowry the baseline strong finish over Tice. And then the other one was where Lowry got past Smart with the Marcus All screen, a value Marcus All screener finished past Tice. So both those, that was to get them to both times. It, it cut the margin to two because Boston scored. But yeah, I thought Lowry was was great overall. Yeah, if he could excise, you know, so I'll give you the shot chart though. Eight of 11 in the restricted area, which is incredible. Two of two floater, one of two from mid-range, and then the two of eight on three-pointers, most of which were above the break, one of which was a heave. But, um, you know, the heave that actually got pretty close, let's let's mention. Um, but yeah, I thought Lowry was, was wonderful overall. Also worth mentioning, Boston just their big makes at the ends of quarters. Kemba Walker hit two three-pointers with, I think each was with less than five seconds to go in the first and second. And then Wanamaker has the controversial finish in the third where he has a knee up and it looks like it might get reversed and called an offensive foul. In fact, it does not. So that becomes a three-point play. Thank God it wasn't, by the way. Like it's impossible. You can't jump off of one foot without lifting up your knee. And now all right, if you're really like, you know, you're doing the Carl Malone and you're like, all right, I'm going to put this knee in your chest. But like Wanamaker, he kind of like lowered his knee as he went in. I mean, he didn't just, exaggerate it. Like this yeah. wasn't, and, and like I was a little bit more skeptical of the Gallinari one in, I think that was game six, yeah. whatever game that was. But this one, yeah, I mean, it, to me, if you're going to, you, you, it's it's too, it, the line would be too far if, if you did it that way. I also wanted to ask you, um, so Boston had an interesting kind of big man bench rotation. Wait, hold on. Well, I, on the flagrant, sure. the one one on Tice was terrible. He had no idea that Lowry was there. Um, I did agree with the one on Siakam with Rob Williams because he just shoved him in a very dangerous way when he's in the air, knocked him down, not even coming close to making any kind of a basketball play on that one. Yeah, so I just who wanted are, to were, weigh in on there that. There were people who were lamenting that that, that was soft, especially because that came in in light of the Wanamaker review, which happened, which happened right after. But pushing a guy in the air, I don't give a shit if somebody thinks it's soft. That shouldn't be in the game because that's how guys get hurt. And it's not a basketball play and yeah i'm i'm you know people who've watched the nba cast i'm in support of hard fouls you know like making sure the guy doesn't get the shot off but once somebody's in the air the risk of injury is just too damn high and yeah. it's 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 separate from it and if people want to say i support softer basketball because of that well okay that's fine but i wanted to go to the uh, the big man rotation so originally you know robert williams hadn't missed a shot in the series ended up going one for two made that crazy dunk and one dunk um but stevens did turn to ennis canner briefly i thought that didn't go particularly well and it's yeah the reason they did that uh, was because the Raptors went zone and they wanted to try yes. him against the zone. Yeah, and but and and Kander offensively, the, the thought process there is totally fine. It's just that he actively sucks defensively. Yeah, I, I hated that move. Same, and and then so but, like you're stopping them in the series, they can't get any kind of breath, 
and all of a sudden you're going to allow them to like get confidence and get a rhythm but and give them a place to attack every time and like you know okay maybe their zone is like messing you up a little bit which we'll talk about more but yeah i I just think particularly with these guards uh and the way that they can shoot the ball off the pick and roll it it really i i did not like that move at all and also like rob williams was playing really well too so i think i think your best path here is yeah, you know what? Maybe you're not scoring as well as you'd like to, but this is like an awesome defensive team. Keep it a defensive series. And it, there are some other things that I, I felt like they struggled with too, but yeah, let's finish up on the big man rotation. So then the other guy who played was Grant Williams. I thought he did well overall, other than being the Grant Williams foul machine that we know and love. But I thought overall, he, you know, I, I think he, I think he has a place, made made one of his three threes in this one. And, you know, was was somebody who got moved his feet reasonably well when he wasn't hacking the crap out of guys. So yeah, I, th- I think that... The Williams, the Williams brothers, they can they can handle the rest of this. Yeah, I, I mean, you, there's also I would I'd still like to see a little more of the brick shit house, uh, and maybe more than Grant Williams who had, but Grant Williams was plus eleven, but, and he he is a better help defender than Ojale. Ojale hit like a ridiculous he three, did. like very. He's been shooting it very confidently in the bubble. I'm uh, we'll see if he ends up being a did they exercise his option is he is he on a on a hinky special i i believe we don't know the here i got it. i'll look it up uh they have a team option for him next year which they'll surely exercise i would imagine so uh but i mean i well, i really well, the I way think he shot I think the ball it's has the been it is the Jokic situation i believe which is that they can decline it and make him a restricted free agent if they want yeah so yeah maybe they would do that but if he if they do i actually would really look into him because i i've been encouraged by the confidence he's shooting the ball with i mean small sample here in the bubble but like he shot that like on the move from like 27 feet no problem um but but uh the other thing i want to talk about is that the transition defense for boston was really poor yes in this one and toronto didn't have great points per possession but they were 98th percentile in terms of transition frequency uh and they ran on 46 percent of all their live rebounds and i thought that in particular the boston bigs didn't do a good enough job of getting back like um you know tice had a couple of big offensive rebounds, but he, Smart will do this too, just went for some like no hopers where you just you just got to be more judicious because if you don't get your bigs back, these these guards, particularly Van Vliet and Lowry, I think they're starting to get confidence now attacking the rim. And so you're going to run into problems if your big man isn't back. And well, so I and thought Tice just got a little too aggressive and they ran it down their throats too many times. And that's also another way of thinking about it is Toronto's half-court offense has been so limited in this series. So if you make them play in the half court more often, that's going to be good. You know what team didn't run off of live rebounds? The Boston Celtics. They only ran on 11% of the live rebounds that they got. And so you think about how how that changes it, that Toronto just gave themselves more shots. And neither team was great in half court offense, but the Raptors were there 81% of the time and Boston was there 89% of the time. And that didn't, that's not necessarily like the reason Boston lost, but I talked about my criticism of their half court offense. But let's get into the zone. I thought that was a really interesting wrinkle, primarily in the third quarter that really did discombobulate the Celtics so yeah second and third quarter I think Nurse's plan generally is when they've got some of these guys particularly Grant Williams on the floor the Williams did hit a three uh, on a play where they really overhelped uh, against him OG kind of had him and they just left him wide open in the near side corner for a three um he was one of two from three I'm sorry one of three from three um but they're going to this one. They tried two things, actually. One was 
a triangle and two and the other one was the matchup zone that we talked about on the last show and i thought that worked awesomely if you look at the numbers they scored per synergy on only nine of 25 possession uh, against those two combined zone defenses um they, they ran the zone for eight possessions in the second 15 in the third but only one possession in the first and the fourth that also could be because nurse has some you know when a bach is in there they feel more comfortable playing the zone although they're still having og start off and you know it does match up after a while into a man-to-man i think part of where it helps is just to kind of give boston a little bit of pause at the start of the possession and like what are they in should we like and they just it takes them you know a few seconds to kind of get organized on what they're going to do i thought boston started to run some better stuff like tatum had a a fantastic possession where he just like cut from one side of the court to the other uh, and i think ended up getting a three can't remember whether it went in or not but um yeah i mean i think I would continue to go to that zone. I think they're a little worried to do it when Boston has their five best players on the floor. And I get And that, that it's really more of a conception, particularly because those five best players are a little better at thinking the game than some of the guys who come in after that. Um, Spread Stevens, uh, he, another one of the things he brought, I'm pretty sure this was, you know, it's tough to tell just based on one possession if you don't see it a bunch of times, but I think he went to, you know, with five seconds left in the third quarter with the Raps trying to go full court, he went to a 2-2-1 zone just to make make sure that the Raptors would struggle to get it up the court just enough so that they couldn't really get it into the scoring area that was really good and then all the stuff with like the pre-switching the Celtics uh there's this cat and mouse game going on with them trying to do a 4-1 pick and roll with Siakam to get Walker onto Siakam there was a play in the third quarter where they switched Walker onto Siakam at the nail they had to and then Walker as soon as they throw the ball Siakam just runs away and a bigger guy ran towards Siakam and Siakam missed a a mid-ranger that's a tactic that they used uh, against LeBron James back in 2018 although I I haven't seen them do it they've done it on the side I haven't seen them do it at the uh at the top yet so that was the, the first time they did that so all the stuff that's happening to try to get matchups and avoid matchups between these two coaches it's been everything that we hoped it would be from a coaching standpoint when we talked about this series a couple other things i want to bring up um one we talked about this in game two but it bears repeating jason tatum's passing has gotten so much better and that especially the one where he's driving and kicks it above the break to the opposite side that's how wanamaker got a three tatum wasn't he wasn't doing that regularly I don't even recall him doing it regularly in like December. I think it was after that that he really just started getting better. And it's really opening things up for Boston. And we this is something Jared Weiss and I talked about on Real GM Radio. I think that was during the hiatus. We talked about how the next step for Tatum was once you get extra attention, you have to harness that extra attention into good looks for other people because the looks you get get worse. And Tatum has really started doing that. So yeah, he was 5 of 18 in this game and his own individual offense was there. But he did not only through some of those actions getting extra attention but also his his reactions gotten better that was something that he you know he's anticipating more so that means you don't have to lean as much on on those you know like reading it and seeing where things go and it's making a world difference the game is slowing down siakam struggled again at only two points in the first uh, with foul trouble but also just you know was not able to get it going i thought actually Jalen brown did a better job on him than he's done in the past he had the primary matchup although grant williams had a little bit too and i would definitely go to siakam when williams is on him just to see if you can pick up a foul i loved that nurse went to siakam for the first possession of the second half and great job getting a back door for an easy layup to get him going that was a a mistake from boston uh 
and they also really started not so much at the top of the key more stuff attacking from the sides which I, I thought worked out well that was one of the recommendations that we had that they didn't really have a chance to implement with his foul trouble in the first half a couple other smaller notes before we just talk about where this series is overall Robert Williams you mentioned that the Williams and Williams guys have it they still need to do a better job of giving putting Robert Williams in in short stints like whenever he comes in he's like shot out of a can like remember he comes in the game and he had that completely preposterous dunk that got the flagrant foul as one of the dunks of the playoffs and you know he's blocking a ton of shots he's running the floor hard I don't think he's even I don't think he's missed a field goal yet in this series he's missed actually. One. Oh yeah yeah in this game that happened yeah so um because at one point he he uh yeah I think he started 11 for 11 and then he missed his 12 so but after about four minutes he gets exhausted particularly early in the second quarter they kept him in for a long time like he was absolutely huffing and puffing like Lowry just went right through him for a layup which he would never allow if he was fresh he was just not getting back on defense um you know that was a big part of the transition he when he's been in there that's really when Toronto has run I would be if I were on the Toronto coaching staff I'd be saying we're gonna really run it down your throats when Robert Williams is in the game um because he's not as good at the whole communication low to the ball thing either so I do think Boston has a lot of stuff to clean up this is the first game to me as as we can just change into talking about where the series is right now I thought Toronto really outplayed the Celtics in this game they got up more threes Boston only got 29 threes which is not that much um they shot 58 percent from two still didn't shoot it great from three but they hit enough in the second half now, worth noting that to outplay them, they had to play Kyle Lowry 46 minutes and Van Vliet 41. Both those guys finished with five fouls and Adobe played 45 minutes and they still, it took a miracle shot to beat them. So I, I think the Boston is still kind of the better team uh, and they probably have the two best players in this series based uh, on how it has gone. Uh, certainly, I think Toronto has to continue to feature Siakam more because he really is the guy that is the only guy who really has a physical advantage where, you know, Lowry and Vidley, they're kind of going to be hot and cold. They'll hit some threes sometimes. Otherwise, other times they won't. We'll see whether this like driving to the rim is sustainable for Lowry. I don't suspect that it is. So, um, and, and fatigue will certainly be on the side of the Celtics as we go forward here. So I still think they're favorites in the series, but Toronto gets back into it. I'm glad because I, I want to see as many games of the series as we can. I, I really have been enjoying every aspect of it so far. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. 
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Absolutely. All right. Well, that was a fun 45 minutes or so on that game. And I feel bad. Someone actually DM me today. A listener is like, hey, you know, you don't really talk about, I haven't really talked that much about the Celtics. I'm like, yeah, you know what? They haven't played that many exciting games. And like, you know, the last game that they played was a, a ridiculous game seven. We had to focus more on that. And now I spent a bunch of time on the Celtics, but they lost. So sorry, man. The, the, their first loss of the playoffs. Um, But, you know, we'll spend a little more time on the Celtics. I'm sure they're they're a really good team. Let's, uh, let's actually, Denver Clippers, I don't have that much to say on it. It kind of really happened about the way we expected. Let's spend some more time here looking ahead to lakers houston which starts tomorrow night and by the way we'll be doing the nba cast tomorrow for game three of milwaukee miami basically uh as zach Lowe put it today defcon one for milwaukee so you can uh, check that out uh, and you can sign up for the calendar to get alerts uh, also subscribe to the youtube channel and you hit that little bell and you can get alerts whenever we go live for the nba cast if you're into that sort of thing but let's talk about this series between houston and the lakers i think we can start when houston has the ball and i think what i'm most interested in is whether we see this kind of same iteration of james harden that we saw in the okc series and, and a lot in the bubble because if he's not you know like as if it's more the the extreme version that we've seen moving forward yeah it's true the lakers don't have amazing personnel for him but i think it gets more tolerable than it would be before especially because one of the defining characteristics of the lakers is that they have so much help around the basket yeah that's going to be interesting what is the strategy going to be on harden is one of the seminal questions to me of uh, this series and the other one is on the houston side of the ball can the lakers hit enough shots to make houston pay like the lakers have good matchups to go against houston but houston does a great job of packing the paint even with their small guys and so uh those threes are going to be available for some of these lakers shooters but we'll talk about that in a second back to the initial question they're gonna probably have danny green and kcp in the starting lineup i would likely go i think i would go danny green on harden but everyone's going to get their opportunities i would actually expect that we will see lebron on either westbrook or harden at the end of games and i don't think that james harden or russell westbrook can do anything against lebron when he's locked in the way he can be so the end of games i definitely think is going to favor the lakers even though they've had some of their foibles in crunch time offense as well um but for the meat of the game it's going to be Danny Green, it's going to be Caldwell Pope. Those will probably be the two. I don't think that Caruso can really guard James Harden. And, you know, Kyle Kuzma might actually get a chance against Harden with a little bit more size. We'll see if Kuzma can avoid fouling. That'll be a big problem for him uh, with just his lack of experience. Although he, Kuzma is another one of these guys who's looked so much better defensively in the bubble than he ever did before. And so it's, it's going to be, I think, more of what we've generally seen from Harden, which is the ISO gain, the drill between the legs a bunch of times, uh, shoot the step back. And I imagine the Lakers will probably start in more of a base defense where they're just going to try and play him straight up. 
they also potentially have in their pocket the whole sit on his left hand make him drive but nobody's really tried that this year since they've gone to the full small lineup right like that worked much better when you had Clint Capella hanging around the rim and so you could have this two-on-one but there wasn't really that much space and and if you had an elite rim protector you could kind of guard both Harden and Capella at the same time even the Bucks, who were the guys who really first started that strategy and Utah neither of them have really done that strategy against Harden since they've gone to this new alignment so maybe the Lakers feel like they can't do that um but I think Harden should be able to eat relatively well I'm curious to see is Danny Green going to be able to handle him one-on-one he won't nobody's going to do as good a job for the Lakers as Lou Dort did last series though you agree with that absolutely yeah I mean Lou Lou Dort uh in terms of his ability to get through screens and guard Harden in in isolation um now of course there will also be the option of going after some other matchups I expect Caruso to get hunted pretty mercilessly when he's on the floor and I think Harden I expect Rondo to get hunted mercilessly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting point, right? Rondo being available and in the rotation, it sounds like he was supposed to come back and then had back spasms. I know it's, uh, this is not the series I would want Rajon Rondo to be debuting considering you know he is he doesn't compete physically anymore so if he gets on Westbrook Westbrook can go right through him Harden is gonna be too strong for him as well you know he might try and draw a couple of charges or something but he's maybe we'll see maybe Rondo will be reinvigorated by the fact that they're you're in the second round and he'll play some better defense he used to be a really tough defender back in the day but he just doesn't seem to have that mentality anymore of just you know like physically he just kind of gives up and lets himself get run over all the time so um yeah that's gonna be fascinating I actually think Dion Waiters has a place in this series because he's used to switching. He's got the big body. He's got long arms. You know, I think against Westbrook, he would actually be a pretty decent matchup. JR might be about cooked, so I, I don't know about him. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting of just uh, the Lakers trying to sort out who can guard who, when you can get away with some of these guys and when you can't uh, going against Houston. And then, you know, are they going to not switch? on these pick and rolls and you know then when you've got anthony davis that waiting at the rim you know it's a little easier to not switch um but if you're going after the guard you still can be like all right you know if harden turns the corner and gets downhill off this screen from robert covington we got anthony davis back there it's not the end of the world but then harden in theory could set up some of those corner threes so that's another question too is when i am pretty sure that what they're going to try and do is the same thing they did against the bucks which is get Anthony Davis guarding whoever it is in the strong side corner, drive right at Anthony Davis and force him to either be the help guy or to pass it back to the corner. And then of course, the other question too, Danny is how is LA going to play? Are they going to play Davis at center in a lot of these minutes or how much are they going to stick with uh, playing another traditional big man? And then also Markeith Morris, is he going to, how is he going to be involved? So that's uh, uh, what would be your answer if you were Frank Vogel uh, with the respect to using those three guys? I would, pro- I would go more towards Davis center. I don't love the Lakers perimeter guys necessarily, but I also think that their, their centers could be a little bit foul happiness and also there it, it can be something that's tough to execute I, I don't necessarily trust JaVale to you know kind of do two things at once necessarily like a lot of the big men have to do against the Houston Rockets but what I think is and this will kind of answer it to an extent is I think one of the real inflection points of this series is going to be the minutes when Harden sits and so before Russell Westbrook returned that was really putting Eric Gordon in the driver's seat he was you know the herky-jerky drives that we've enjoyed a lot as was there and with Russell Westbrook and no Harden 
to me, that's when the Lakers should load up, go big, and just basically say, okay, if you want to take a bunch of jump shots, some nights they'll go in, but otherwise it's going to scuttle everything else that they're doing. And Westbrook will do at least two like out of control drives and throw it off the backboard that happens all the time. And so you get your bigs happy in those minutes and then you kind of play it by ear in the rest of the time. Yeah, you might try to get some more time for those bigs when Harden is out of the game, as you mentioned. And another key thing is if the Lakers are really going to focus on barricading the rim, are Houston threes coming from the corner? Or are they coming from above the break? I would really be selling out. I think one thing that we haven't really seen a team do yet against Houston is, okay, you want to drive? What we're going to do is we're going to have someone help off the corner, but then what we'll do is have everyone kind of sink down to the level of the ball, basically, and say, all right, James Harden, if you're driving, we're making you throw the ball back out to the top for a three-pointer. Like, whoever's guarding guys up top, we're going to rotate one of those guys down. You could even have the guy who's guarding Harden once he gets beat, just circle back yeah. into the corner. We actually saw the Celtics do some of that in this game. We also saw the Jazz kind of try that strategy last year in the playoffs. That's one that they could really bring back also uh, to just say, all right, P.J. Tucker, we're going to just, James Harden drives right by me. Okay, Anthony Davis has got him. I'm going to just run to the corner as soon as he beats me, and I'm going to take that pass instead. We haven't seen anyone try that yet. I don't know how inventive Frank Vogel is going to be, but I, I think that's a strategy that they could try. Um so obviously much will depend on whether Houston is hitting threes. I think in some of these games, they're going to hit enough to, to win games for sure and have efficient offensive nights, even though this Lakers team is a pretty decent uh, off or defensive team. More than that, they're an outstanding defensive team. Um, one thing they tried in the game that they played with the first Robert Covington game was having AD guard Russell Westbrook and Westbrook actually beat him pretty good I would go back to that though if I were the Lakers because I think AD can guard Westbrook he can back off of him and Westbrook is not I mean watching some of the film from that which Slater tweeted out uh Westbrook does not look nearly as explosive as he did back in that game when he was beating AD and I think AD could just continue to back up on him and say all right try and score over me at the rim and then then as we switch to the other end of the floor Danny you mentioned the Russell Westbrook break the backboard layups no team in the NBA is better equipped except maybe the Raptors to take advantage of Houston's very poor transition defense particularly when Russell Westbrook misses a layup Absolutely. I mean, the Lakers, when LeBron is on the floor, have been so dynamic in transition. And I mean, one one other way of putting that is is Houston. Their opponents are opponents are only in the half court eighty point two percent time. That's middle of the road, and the Lakers will push it. They'll push it hard in those minutes. And Houston, you know, they say, hey, they're small. They should be able to get their guys back. But remember that getting back is very different against LeBron James than it is against damn near everybody else. And especially with Anthony Davis leaking out sometimes. And remember, he might be contesting more three pointers in this series than we usually see. And so if that's the case, then that'll create some real advantages. So yeah, I, I think that transition is a real a real advantage for the Lakers overall in this. And the other kind of, to me, ant- like connected part of that is Houston really does. Like, so, so if you look at at the overall stats for this year, like you brought up the the attention that they can pay inside the basket and inside the rim. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, like they can throw guys in the paint if they need to, but they provide a lot less resistance when you're facing LeBron and Anthony Davis. And so this year, the Rockets were um, 22nd in opponent rim frequency, and then they were 23rd in opponent, you know, accuracy. At the 
rim. The opponent shot 65.5% at the rim in cleaning, cleaning glasses, garbage time filter. And I just think it's going to be a barrage. And even it's not necessarily about that rim percentage. It's also because foul trouble matters more for the Rockets than almost anybody because they don't have that many players that Mike D'Antoni trusts. And the guys who matter a lot to this team commit a bunch of fouls. Yeah, AD getting to the lineup a lot could be a major problem. Now, P.J. Tucker guards him extremely well, but it is a switching system. And if the, if AD gets Robert Covington on him or really anyone other than P.J. Tucker, I want to see what ends up happening. Are they going to double? They probably will, or they'll at least really you know be very aggressive in zoning up uh, under the basket. And so then AD is going to have to find guys, and those guys are going to have to hit shots to loosen up that Houston defense. Also, another thing to watch out for is anytime AD switches onto the perimeter, him sprinting down against a smaller player to get a quick post up with LeBron throwing those 70-foot passes to him, that, that's something I think Houston's going to have a lot of trouble dealing with. Um, I do think that particularly because of the shooting aspect and the way Houston really packs the paint, yeah, the offensive glass could be big for the Lakers, but you know nobody really seems to have killed Houston too bad on that yet. And I mean, they're not a good defensive rebounding team, but nobody's getting like 40% offensive rebounds, which is what you really need to like win a game with just offensive rebounding alone. I think Markeith Morris is bad. I'm guessing that Vogel, who loves his two bigs, that might be where he goes first just because it's like, oh, he's switchier. Like he can shoot the three a little bit, but like he can't actually really do any of those things. So like having him out there is kind of just as bad as the center, except he at least stands out by the arc. And also Markeith, I think, is going to get cooked in a switch against Harden if that happens. So I I would like to see, uh, I mean, that's the question, right? Like how much is this Lakers rotation going to tighten up? Is it going to be, we're going to play Deion Waiters instead of JaVale McGee or, or Dwight? Dwight is actually the guy I like the most of these bigs. I think he's got enough mobility where he can get out on the floor kind of Lillard style, take the ball out of Harden's hands earlier, though Harden is one of the greatest pocket passers of all time. But if you want to say, hey, P.J. Tucker, you know, Dwight Howard's guarding P.J. Tucker, set the screen, and then P.J. Tucker is going to attack, and we still have Anthony Davis on the back line, you know, I think I'm okay with that. I definitely would... JaVale I think is going to really struggle you know if they do go with the bigs they seem averse to starting Howard for whatever reason but I think he would be a better option there but I mean let's count it out let's say they don't let's say Morris McGee and Howard are limited to spot duty your rotation is Kuzma Davis LeBron Danny Green that's four KCP that's five Caruso is six Rondo you know he's got as many liabilities as the center do I would have waiters over Rondo personally but I don't think Vogel would yeah yeah, I, I mean, maybe they'll try and get some J.R. Smith minutes, but that's uh, has not, he hasn't been shooting the ball well. That hasn't really been successful. Would they try a Taylor Horton Tucker? I don't think that's a good idea. Like, he's a little bit too too slow and too foul prone he doesn't have the quickest feet in the world like if he gets on hard and he's going to get cooked uh, so this is to me is the series where they're going to miss avery bradley more than they would have missed it they were going to miss him in the portland series do they dust off jared dudley i think jared dudley would be able to give them more than any of the three bigs in the series particularly as a shooter but obviously frank vogel doesn't agree with me because jared dudley hasn't played all season quinn cook is going to get destroyed defensively if he has to play so you understand why when we go really go through it why the lakers would like to stay big if they can and that's kind of their identity but let me ask you this if the lakers stay big do you think that hurts that has the potential to hurt them more offensively or defensively where is the pain point first for them with that i think it's on offense but it, it could you're right it could easily be on either end I think I think it's on offense too. I, I think uh, 
because and there's something to be said for the two bigs because if you have to have one big sticking on the strong side corner you don't come up with some inventive solution for that then your secondary rim protector is still the other big and yeah then they can throw it to the weak side corner but that pass takes a little bit longer and then somebody can get down there and you can get into rotations that way and actually have a chance at closing out on someone so maybe that is a thought of why you're going to potentially have two bigs but then again we saw that with the bucks too and but the bucks didn't stay home on the strong side corner with their two bigs the way i I think la probably needs to um we also haven't talked about who the hell is going to guard lebron james and i think pj tucker could do an excellent job of that but i would rather put tucker on davis and covington is way too slight i don't think he's he would be able to do it in the post i think it's because they switch everything i think it's going to default a lot into lebron posting up and that's why i agree with you when you said the two bigs is going to hurt them more on offense because if lebron is to post up instead of run pick and roll now you really need some more spacing uh, around him and i think that's what he's going to have to do in this series i don't think he's going to be able there's i don't think he's going to be able to blow guy by guys necessarily in isolation that well yeah, uh, but be, he's going to have gonna a massive advantage i think that's and and i think something that's been i haven't seen too much coverage of this series that's been lost i think this is going to be a really ugly series i think it's going to be a more plotting and deliver because and i think that's you know in many ways that's the lakers best chance to win because if they go yeah. to those other than their transition other game, than but like transition. in the half court yes. you're saying in, in in the half court and then they'll try to grind they'll try to grind the rockets down a little bit we could see some of those like drive and then kick out and then it'll be whether those role players make threes or not we've seen that define houston series for years now and sometimes that's worked out well for them other times it really has not and yeah i am um, i'm about ready for prediction anything else important that you think we haven't mentioned um on houston's side i think this is the series where ben mclemore can give them more than in the okc series particularly when lebron is out of the game there just aren't the guys who are going to blow by him the way okc had with those three guards yeah or danilo gallinari I agree with you. And his, and and his ability to just drill up in shots could be valuable. Yeah, I think that's huge. I mean, Robert Covington as a help defender is going to is gonna have to play a lot. Uh, I think Jeff Green is not going to have as good of a series as he had against OKC. Um, oh, oh, here's one. And, I think that Houston has to do a really good job of setting up their personnel for the non-LeBron minutes. I've, I've brought up the non-Harden minutes as being key, but like the non-LeBron minutes, because the, they're, you know, you and I have talked about it with Rocket Series forever, but there are certain players who just especially in Houston system shouldn't be on the floor in those minutes but make sure okay they're as soon as LeBron's at the table or is going out make sure those guys are in Eric Gordon is going to need to hit more shots in the series he finally hit some towards the end of that series against OKC but I think he's going to find the sledding getting to the basket much more difficult in this series than against OKC which really OKC other than Nerlens at times although he's still kind of flighty really didn't have any rim protection at all and so obviously the Lakers are in a much different category there I don't think this is a great series for Austin Rivers also because I think his drive game can kind of be shut down and there's not he's probably their best small guy perimeter defender but there really isn't anyone like that for the lakers that he needs to guard so that's why i kind of would like mclemore more over rivers uh, um in the rotation and yeah let's get let's get into predictions here it is my turn to go first and if james harden were playing at his absolute highest level if we didn't have yet another period of james harden really just not playing well in clutch time not playing well at the end of series not playing well when he hasn't had a super long break which he's not gonna have they just played a seven game where the lakers definitely have the rest advantage um oh but, if but, he but, were but at but the top of his really game, important i mean look at clippers nuggets yeah 
uh if if he were at the top of his game and then also Westbrook is not at the top of his game either he's coming back from the injury still he hasn't quite looked like the same guy although you know he he's incrementally gotten better at least look physically I think every game but those two guys I think are just not going to be good enough to trouble the Lakers in, in the end and if Harden was going to be going off for 40 and Westbrook he had 41 against the the Lakers if those guys were really in form and maybe that maybe that'll change but the Lakers are a much better defensive team than OKC and those guys did not really play particularly well against OKC so I I think Houston was going to get up a ton of threes I think they can win two games in the series but not more than that I'm going to go Lakers in six if Harden and Westbrook were playing better I might have I was even toying with picking Houston with the Lakers struggles early in the bubble when I was thinking about this but those fortunes have really diverged the Lakers are back to looking like the team that they are LeBron and AD were both struggling early now those guys have really looked much better and I think those are the those might even be the two best players in the series. And certainly LeBron is better than Harden and AD is better than Westbrook. And I don't think there's a huge difference in the sporting cast. Uh, Houston probably has the coaching and system advantage, but not enough to overcome uh, this. But I, I, it's going to be fascinating to see LeBron go against a switching defense like this and how how he is going to try to process this whole series. And you know, does he end up settling for jumpers and some isos or is he going to just relentlessly attack like he started doing that Portland series? And if he does get to the basket and they have enough space around him, he's going to be completely unstoppable in this series. I thought, but Houston is a really good defense. Like I, I don't mean to discount their defense. I think they are. Uh, they did a great job of, of stopping OKC, and that to me is where their best hope of winning this series to me is actually to make it into more of a defensive series and really cause problems for LA, make them miss a bunch of shots, and because I don't, I don't think that Houston is going to just like light up this LA defense. I don't see that happening at all. I don't, I don't see that happening either. And I considered picking a sweep here. I didn't. I, I'm going to go Lakers in five. I, I think that Ooh. the, the Count like the I, I focus a lot on undeniability, and I don't think you this the, the, you brought up how well the Rockets have defended, and that's true overall. And I think that they and you know they deserve credit for what they did against Oklahoma City. We talked a lot in that series about how there weren't that many guys in the Thunder that just really like work their guy one on one. The Lakers have those guys. And Houston, the part that made that made me consider there are two things that made me consider the sweep, but also move away from it. One was I brought up foul trouble earlier. I think that's going to be, there are going to be at least I think two games in this series that swing because Covington, PJ Tucker, one of those two guys just gets a couple early fouls and just you you can't keep them in too long because the guys who are giving them fouls are going to stay in the game. And then the other the other part of it is just that Houston to me they don't have a lot of other things they can try. They you know they, they have talent players to be sure but they don't have other options at what that can try to stop the Lakers like it's not like they can go to a bigger lineup or they can go to any of this stuff they have a very narrow thing that they do extremely well and it worked against OKC that's part of why I, I you know I ended up being wrong I thought I was I was stronger on Houston in that series than ended up being the case they nearly lost it but I also think that Harden's gonna the, the road is gonna be tougher for him that there isn't gonna be as, as much there and also I could see Houston if they go down let's say two 2-0 or 3-0, I don't think they're going to respond the same way that some that, that some teams have. You know, full credit to Denver and a few others for yeah. getting down big. I think if it's, you know, 2-0 and they're up and then LA's up 15 points in game three, then we're, we're going a very specific direction here. And yeah, now I will respond to that in saying that they were down 2-0 against the Warriors last year and they they made it a series. Yeah, but that wasn't on a neutral site. So I, I think that the bubble is going to yeah. is going to shift that a little bit. And yeah, you're probably right about that. And also, so but the reason I'm not 
not picking is there are a couple reasons they're not peaceful. One, the Rockets are a very, very good team. I mean, I, I've said before that they were the, the third best team in the West. They are in that tier two of championship contenders. I just think that they're, especially with the way they're playing right now, there's some limitations. But I also think the Rockets, they have, they'll, their players will be hot at least once. And I wouldn't shock me at all to see this be a six game series or, or even maybe a seven if things worked out. But I, I think the overall balance of this, I think, I, as I said, I think this isn't going to be as pretty a series as some would hope, other than the Lakers in transition. But I think I think they have a, a market advantage. And also, if we get into clutch situations, that that idea that I talked about of undeniability, it's you know I think the Lakers guy the Lakers guys are going to be more effective getting to their stuff and taking Houston's away than the Rockets are, especially Russell Westbrook. So you've got five, I've got six. Uh, very quickly, we got some news too. But uh, the Clippers beat the Nuggets one twenty to ninety seven. It was not that close. It was sixty nine fifty at halftime. I think it was sixty nine fifty one actually at halftime, and then the Clippers poured it on. They it never really got closer than twenty five the rest of the way. Uh, Kawhi Leonard completely unstoppable. Twelve of sixteen from the field for twenty nine points in thirty two minutes uh, and two steals three assists he just was getting wherever he wanted to go I thought that maybe Jeremy Grant could cause him a little bit of trouble in isolation that was not the case Grant got completely destroyed anybody else that they got onto him got completely destroyed on switches Jokic looked a little bit better going against Zubats but Jokic was back to being just as terrible as ever protecting the basket in the Clippers what did they have like 30 points in the paint in the first half might have even been more than that um everyone was just having a, a party at the rim the Nuggets couldn't hit a three-pointer that's two games in a row that they've really cooled off there Jamal Murray didn't I mean he basically spent no time going against a defender that he could take advantage of where that was kind of what he did the entire series against the Jazz and he he looked fatigued uh, the Nuggets obviously overall were not uh feeling particularly great and I think that you know maybe just it's almost good that they got blown out because they can recover and understand what this series is about and get enough rest where maybe they compete the rest of the way but I mean I I certainly was regretting not picking a sweep a sweep uh after uh, right about the time that Mason Plumley picked up his third foul in his fourth minute of play I sort of began well, to here, think here's oh, the, God, I here's wish the I thing though I think the Clippers winning it this easily could lead to them screwing around and losing a game <laughs> Yeah, although I mean they still like they still have Kawhi Leonard though. That's but true. I, I like Kawhi Leonard to me. It's particularly with Giannis's struggles. Like he's just the no-brainer best player in the NBA right now, and maybe that'll change in a Lakers series. But like nobody has had even the slightest answer for him yet. Let's get to some news. I, I think the place to start. Oh, but no, we got to talk about this like slightly more. Oh. <laughs> um, this is the first worth noting that in this is the fourth playoff series that Denver has played over the last two years, and this is their first time playing like a real team like a real championship level of team many in Denver have pointed to the idea that Denver could be a championship threat and why why aren't they at the top of the west and uh, it's only one game, but certainly this is a completely different level of competition than, than what they've played. Uh, Harold continues to look a little bit better every game. I, I thought, um, you know, Doc Beverly was back. He looked fine. They only played 12 minutes, which I think is exactly what they wanted. Uh, Zubats was good around the rim. Nuggets started Gary Harris, and, you know, he had a couple of shots early 
I think I actually would try Gary Harris on Kawhi in the next game because Grant was totally overwhelmed. I think, uh, you know, Harris, when he was guarding George, I thought he did okay. George tried to go back to goal against him one time. And uh, and then, or it's just going to be double teaming Leonard. We wondered whether, oh, you know, the, the Nuggets putting two guys on the ball. And what does that mean for the Clippers don't have that many great passers? Well, the Clippers did a great job of diving guys up. Even Zubats on the short roll was just easily finding Mark. Marcus Morris in the short corner for wide open threes and he was four or five from three he had a, he had a great game um and the height of the Clippers passers uh, in pick and roll compared to the Jazz they're able to throw the pass over the top to whoever they want to when the Nuggets put two on the ball whereas Conley and Mitchell have to throw like a little bounce pass or something like they're not capable of making that same pass and so the Clippers just absolutely carved up the Nuggets they couldn't stop him at the rim um Leonard once he gets by his man there's absolutely nobody there who can do anything to help out at the basket and uh yeah I don't know I I there's the game was over so quickly you almost couldn't even really have many adjustments well, uh, to I, I make. want to bring it up you, you brought the the nuggets help defense the clippers in the first half alone 11 of 13 in the restricted area seven of nine from floater range and they also got to the free throw line 11 times and made 10 of those and so they actually did have a small free throw disparity and it's just like it, there isn't too much structurally that you can change there like you brought up the idea of the, the lack of adjustments it's just like the the assault that's going to happen at the basket Jokic. Uh, something that Draymond Green brought up at, at halftime like he, he's just not that guy and he that's that's Jokic is an unbelievable player we've seen what he can do but he's not a great deterrent at the rim and the Clippers if, he, if you're not a deterrent they don't really care and yeah I, you brought up Beverly I thought that he really did make an impact when he was on the floor and it was really a dream for Doc Rivers because they didn't have to play him that much so Beverly you know he got to show a little bit of burst got to got to do a couple of things but then got out of there before anything really bad happened and muscle injuries are tricky so getting out of there cleanly is very important yeah and maybe if the nuggets hit more shots which they did early on when it was tied at 31 after one you know grant uh was three of six again in this game he hit all three of his threes in the first Jokic only had three assists and but he, he had all three of his assists i think pretty early on they got a couple of back doors which looked okay Jokic also only two three-point attempts and missed both of them so I, i'd like to see him take a few few more threes but in any event, uh, that's that's enough on this game. It was not it was not competitive, uh, and I have a feeling we will that many of our recaps in this series are going to be like this. Uh, but well, we talked about we, shit. we talked about the Nuggets yeah. plenty last series. So if any Nuggets fans think they got short shrift, it's like we've spent hours on on your team very recently. Uh, well, let's spend some time on Steve Nash becoming uh, the head coach in Brooklyn, uh, according to Anthony uh, Puccio. Uh, of Nets Daily. This had been in the works since May, despite uh, reporting to the contrary. Woj, of course, saying, no, 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 they hadn't decided yet. Although Woj, Woj, when someone says that something was decided before Woj broke it, he likes to say, oh, no, they had all these discussions. And you can always technically be like, well, they hadn't officially decided or whatever. But I, I will, I'll trust uh, Puccio on this one. Um, but Jock Vaughn will stay on as an assistant in the similar role to, of course, what he had under Kenny Atkinson and you know Steve Nash has a good relationship with Kevin Durant from back when Nash was a Warriors consultant and Nash is one of the more emotionally intelligent people out there one of the most beloved teammates ever and 
I think that is the number one criterion is just relating to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving on an emotional level. So I do understand the hire, even if there are many concerns, of course, about Nash being ready. But you do have an experienced guy in Jock Bond who's going to be his right-hand man who can help him. Right. And it is always a risk to hire a co- somebody who has no real coaching experience. You brought up that, that Nash was a consultant before with the Warriors. Yeah. I mean, that was more kind of individual yes. drill yeah, work. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't, you know, the game by game building a battle plan or anything like that. And there have been a number of them recently. I mean, Mark Jackson, and a lot of them are former point guards. Mark Jackson, which I covered, you know, that was my early, one of my early beats on the Warriors was was that. Steve Kerr, of course, you know, had no, had no coaching experience. And Jason Kidd in Brooklyn, though that was a different regime. And I think what you brought up about the emotional intelligence is really interesting because I had been fixated on Ty Lue as a potential for the Nets because they have so much talent. And honestly, you know, like getting players that mercurial to buy in is is maybe more important than maximizing, you know, oh, well, making sure Torian Prince is in the right position and everything like that. And so that's why I had fixated on Lue. And Steve Nash is a really interesting part there because he has similar emotional intelligence. He just doesn't have the coaching experience. And you have to have you have to have somebody on the you know, a budget people on the staff just like Steve Kerr did who can kind of fill in those gaps and really it is a like we we run into this challenge talking about coaches where there are a lot of different people that make it work but the credit and blame all goes on one person and I think it is worth considering the importance of a coaching staff and making and and hopefully Nash not only has the you know the budgetary authority of this but also has the you know the willingness to bring in talented people around him and we see that with Jacques Vaughn already as being a, you know somebody who who has experience even though you and I weren't the biggest fans of him in Orlando he has done a he did a very good job in the bubble with the Nets and he has a connection with of course a lot of these players so I'm interested in where it goes and for me the thing that was most striking about this was kind of paralleling you could say with Steve Kerr or numerous other guys it's like well I I'm not surprised that he got offered a coaching job I'm surprised he actually wanted well this is the type of offer for a team like this that was I think was required to get him to do it and also worth noting that Nash has been integrally involved as kind of the director of Canada basketball. So he does have some experience there as well. So that that's in evaluating talent and, and managing egos and stuff like that. Uh, so, but I think, you know, is, this is really a bet on the emotional intelligence of Steve Nash and the reputation of Steve Nash. I think Kyrie Irving has often pointed to Nash as a big inspiration for him as well. And so I think that that's why they went this way. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure KD really wanted him. And yes, I think you can say that there are other more qualified coaches that they should have gone after, but that's not who Kevin Durant wanted. And simply by dint of being the coach that Kevin Durant wants, and presumably Kyrie Irving as well, that makes him the best candidate, which, yeah, that seems like kind of nepotistic, but that's also reality. The NBA runs on superstars. Durant and Kyrie are two of the more mercurial superstars. As their happiness and egos go, so will go the rest of the team. Steve Nash is considered one of the best teammates ever, one of the best passers ever. I think he's going to have a good modern philosophy in terms of his offense, obviously, coming from D'Antoni and the Warriors. You can't be in two better places with that. We'll see whether he kind of struggles with the rotations, but it's... I think this is people who are condemning this hire and are worried and and some people that I really respect are 
I don't mind it. I think it's outside of the box. It's for this specific team. I think it makes is this is this to me makes more sense than if this were some just like rebuilding schlub team, right? Like with just the, your number one criterion for the job is ego management, and Steve Nash, according to everyone involved, is the best guy to do that. And there's just, I think there's a self fulfilling prophecy behind that in some ways. Like, hey, this is the guy that you wanted, so obviously you can't complain now, right? And I hadn't considered him just because of the idea that I didn't know that that's what Nash wanted, but he does really yeah. check the most important boxes and and i think the idea of it falling back on durant and irving is a truly fascinating one of being like hey you got your guy now you have to actually do it and i'll be interested to see like what you know what of nash that he from his playing experience what carries over in terms of what he wants to see on the court that's always really interesting with former players and also is this you know does this change the way some potential free agents think about the nets they don't have financial flexibility they're well over the cap well into the tax but also maybe this is an indication of, of Josiah's willingness to spend because I doubt Nash came cheaply. They got a four-year commitment. So if they're willing to like use the mid-level exception, that's going to make a huge difference for the Nets too. It would be exceedingly pricey, but it would be very useful. Yeah, and we've seen some of these guys who have been first-time coaches who were former players that didn't really have much experience. Some of them do well, some of them don't. Uh, you know, Jason Kidd, not that great. Mark Jackson, mixed record. Larry Bird, really good record uh, coming in uh, immediately. Magic Johnson, you know, only I think he was like four and sixteen or something with a ba- with a bad team, and then he quit immediately. You know, you can go back to like Dan Issel, and you know, I mean, the whole ha- not having been an assistant thing is a little bit of a concern. But Steve Kerr was never an assistant either. He was a GM, which is you know gives him a little more understanding of the process than Nash. But Nash also played in the NBA till he was forty one years old. Uh, I, I'm not. I think this is. I'm higher on this higher than I think than a lot of people. Um, Quickly here, awards-wise, Brandon Ingram a couple days ago won Most Improved Player. That's who I had. Um, You know, I know Luca was up there for you, and I agreed with you, but I just try not to have second-year guys. He almost made me break my rule. I'm totally fine with Brandon Ingram winning, even though, especially considering I broke my own rule for this. So yeah, his shooting improvement was The greatest one-season shooting improvement in NBA history, probably, by him. And then John Moran, almost unanimous Rookie of the Year, 99 of 100 votes he absolutely deserved it and i mean remember it was a pre it was a pre-bubble award but then i mean it's not like zion did anything in the bubble anyway so it's yeah i mean i'm, I'm extre- exceedingly excited to see where Morant goes from here and yeah two deserving winners not much we have to say about it none being second over zion was insane yes, though absolutely um you know like zion williamson even provided more value in 10 games than than kendrick nunn provided over the course of, of the entire season and Ja, though, he did say, I want to know who the one guy was who didn't vote for me. He got 99 out of 100 votes. Uh, and that that will come out, but I'm, I'm very, he's like, that's going to give me motivation. I, I, I really enjoy uh, John Morant's attitude. And hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. We have one more podcast before we go subscription four days a week. That will be Sundays. We'll wrap up all of the weekend's action. But if you want to get in on a subscription podcast we'll also do likely an early release podcast of some of, at least one of the games over the weekend uh for dunked on prime subscribers so link is in the show notes dunkedon.supportingcast.fm and we'll talk to most of y'all on sunday but subscribers maybe on saturday at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 
21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.